Luke told us exactly why he wrote his gospel in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. We live in a world of moral relativism where your truth is true for you and my truth is true for me, and that is inconceivable, illogical nonsense that we have drunk at the altar of our culture. If it is true, it is always true. A truth is substantiated and defensible. And when Luke crafts this unique and longest of the Gospels, he says these things are written so that you will know the exact truth about what you have been taught. So we read the Gospel of Luke from Dr. Luke, who by the way, it's a long uh, gospel, longer than the other three. He uses more vocabulary. He records stories today, for example, the others do not record. And many are surprised to, to learn that he wrote more of the New Testament than Paul, because Luke and Acts comprise about 30% of your New Testament. So if we spend 12 or 13 years in the gospel of Luke, it's only fitting that we're going along with the bulk of the New Testament. So see, when Dr. Luke compiles this account, his detail is fascinating. The structure is mind-blowing what he does in his gospel record. And this chapter 15 is unique in what we call the lost. Lloyd introduced last weekend the lost sheep, the lost coin, and today we look at the lost son, the so-called prodigal. In the fourth century Latin Vulgate, that is when they took the Greek part of the New Testament and translated it into Latin Vulgate, uh, the title fixed to this part was called the prodigal. That word means to squander or to waste. Now those titles in your English Bible are not in the original text, but some of them fit pretty well and they take on a life of their own as does this word. It's a good word. It is a little wanting. It should at least be called the prodigals, plural, as we'll see as the story unfolds. At best it would be called a story of a father with two different sons. But that isn't as cool as the word prodigal. So we stick with the word prodigal. What we'll find out in the record is that the story, is, its power is limitless and its age is ageless. It's a story that transcends cultures and space and time. But with all parables, you must remember it was a story everybody could get. A parabolic, a parable language is something a child to an older person would completely understand and they would get the point of the story. The layers of the parable, although sometimes unfathomable, can obscure the simple and front message. So we've got three characters, a father and his two sons, and the story of that. And everybody who heard this in the first century Middle Eastern ear would completely understand and will unpack it some for us today. The Rembrandt painting, probably 1663 to 65, when he painted it, one of his last magnificent works, he dies in 1669. There are volumes written, and uh, it's worth study if you have an interest in art history. To see what he has put in this painting would be a series of 10 sermons conservatively. A picture is worth a thousand words, and what he captures in this is extraordinary in this rendering. At the highest level, the parable teaches God has an extraordinary love and compassion for his people. But no one ever shed a tear over a propositional truth. If I just tell you God loves you, you say, okay, God loves me. So we're going to see a story of this love of God 
that's inestimable, that's mind-boggling, that blows categories and conventions. Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. A man had two sons. If you're 17 to 20 and unmarried, you're at home, and this would be the age bandwidth of the younger son. The older, according to Old Testament law, was to be given the largesse of this estate. The firstborn, first son, whether it was husbandry, a vineyard, crops, whatever, that man, his trade, his business, he would give it to his son. In this case, the older son would get uh, half of all of it. The younger son would get a third of what remained. Now, for the first century ear to hear this story, and I've tried to explain this in other parables, the Middle Eastern Jewish mindset would have gone, what? A younger son asks for his inheritance while his father is alive? They would have covered their mouth. They would have been shocked and appalled. They would have come out of their seats. There's a man named Kenneth Bailey who spent 16 plus years studying Middle Eastern views of literature. And no matter Arabs, uh, Jews, no matter who he talks to in the Middle East, when he tells them this story, they go, what would be the reaction? And it varies from anger to outrage to unbelievable. A son would never ask a father for his inheritance. Because what you're saying is, I wish you were dead. Give me my part. I want to leave And this father is doing everything he can to set something up for his children so that when he's gone, they will have the blessing of what his father has done. Well, this premature insulting, its impropriety would have the audience already. It's a great story. They're pulled in. The tension is built. A son has asked his father for his inheritance so he can leave. And if that weren't enough, he divided his wealth between them. Some of your Bibles might say property between them. Wealth and property are the general meaning. The word is bios in Greek, which has the nuance of life. It's intended to be, this is what I have worked for to sustain my life and your lives. This is what I have built and developed so that when you're married, you'll be able to sustain your wife's life and my grandchildren's life and their children's life. I have, I have developed this, this vineyard. I have raised these animals. I have farmed this land so that you and your family and their children will have life. So it's one thing to say, give me some money. It's another to say, give me the life that I worked so hard to give it to you. To take care of you for life. And we know the story too well. He will squander that possession right away. Verse 13, not many days later. The younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Cash in, party on, the life of sin begins and ends very quickly. Now, again, attention. Put yourself in that first century audience. They have gone from... What, what incredible cruelty, arrogance to ask your father that he's dead. The father would give it to him? You've got to be out of your mind. No father would do that in the Middle East. No way in the world would he give his son uh, prematurely his inheritance. And then the son takes it and leaves and squanders it. They're, they're, they're thrown back on their heels. They're going crazy. This doesn't happen in that culture, in that context. 
He's abandoned effectually any moral claims to his father. He's abandoned the estate, if as it were, of what will be his livelihood for the rest of his life. The word squanders is a fun word in the way it's used in many other applications of riotous, undisciplined, gluttony, loose living. Three times more in the New Testament it shows up. In Ephesians 5.18 is a drunkard. In uh, Titus 1.2 as a rebellious child. And in 1 Peter 4.4 as excessive. It's a waste. It's squandering. It's blowing it. Verse 14, now when he spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. Well, party hardy, it's all gone, and now reality crashes in. This is insult on top of injury. It's not bad enough that he squandered his estate. Now there's a famine. And remember, in the first century, uh, it's almost always a severe famine. You don't talk about a famine. There's a severe famine. If it doesn't rain, the crops don't grow. If the crops don't grow, there's no feed for the animal. If there's no feed for the animal, the animal doesn't reproduce. No feed for the animal, they don't produce milk or offspring. They begin to die. You can't kill the animals you have because if you kill them, there's none to replace them. So a famine takes Abram's sons to go to Egypt to look for food, remember? Uh, because there's no food. They have to go travel distance. If the dry, arid culture, when a severe famine occurs, it's, you're going to die. So what is he going to do? Reality has crashed in. When I worked in college as a mechanic, I worked as a diesel mechanic, and there were some mechanics on the line um, that they called me college boy because I was the one going to college working, and uh, I was, you know, they were, most of them never got into high school, much less finished, but they were great craftsmen, great tradesmen. They were very good mechanics, but not so good with their money. Every Friday, we'd line up to the foreman, and he would get our paycheck, and we'd sign a little piece of paper, and he'd hand our check, and they would take that check Friday. And some of these guys who were extraordinary mechanics, there was one in particular, he, this was 1976. I remember seeing a $1,600 take-home pay for one week as a mechanic. That's a lot of money for an uneducated, skilled mechanic. He would take that $1,600 on Friday afternoon. I'd take my $196 home. Uh, he would take that money and he would blow it. And he would come back Monday morning, hungover, unbathed, look like, you know what, the cat drug in, penniless. He did it week after week after week after week. He squandered all that he worked for. What a tragedy. Well, this man squandered everything he has. It gets so bad that he's going to be impoverished. Look what it says. He began to be impoverished. The, the weight of this language is you're under the rule of something. So think about uh, we have people in our town, we have people in major cities who are, maybe they have some mental problems, maybe they are drug addicted, maybe they have very hard lives, but they live under bridges, under cardboard boxes, they beg, they sell newspapers, they live a life of addictions, and um, it's a very sad part of our world. It's true around the world. It's true in the first century. And what the author is saying here is they're under the rule or the weight of poverty. It's hard to break. And you can give people lots of resources, but you know, they'll squander them because they're under this weight. And the text tells us that he was, began to be impoverished, and it's due to his own fault. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out 
to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. This story can't get any worse. He's insulted his father. His father has cashed in part of his estate and given him the money. He's gone and squandered the money immediately. Now he's in a severe famine, and now he's going to go feed pigs for a living. This audience is reeling. There are a hundred things wrong with this story already for the Middle Eastern Jewish ear who Jesus is talking about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. From bad to worse, the story has gone. Obviously, he's in a Gentile land. He attaches himself to a citizen. Wouldn't use that language if it was Jewish. And you wouldn't find any Jewish pig farmers. You don't find that today either. No matter how you cook it, it's still unclean. Leviticus 11.7, Jews are forbidden from all occupations related to feeding pigs. Now, I don't want to uh, get too graphic, but if you've never been around pigs in a pig farm, let me just tell you, there's no way to describe the stench. Uh, paper mills and pig farms smell about the same. If you've been, been south wind of a paper mill, you think you're going to gag when you breathe. Uh, multiply that with pigs. And it doesn't matter how clean you try to keep a pig farm, they're called pigs for good reason. <laughs> they're in their muck, they eat their food in their muck, and their muck is on you. It's impossible to keep a pig clean. Ergo, unclean, don't eat them. So cook that bacon really well. That's my advice to you. The first century Jew would hear this and be nearly offended. It would almost be an offensive story. If that weren't bad enough, he's willing to eat the carob pod. Now, carob uh, is not unlike, uh, in Texas, we call them pea pod trees. Um, you have them in Tennessee too, I'm sure. But they, they have these little pod things that grow and they curl. And as kids, you try and smoke them. You try to smoke a pea pod. I know I'm the only one who ever did that. But anyway, these little pea pods. Uh, in Israel, they grow over there and they're called carob. There's all kinds of variety of carob in the Middle East. They use it for chocolate. Those aren't the ones they use to feed pig. Um, but the carob pod was like straw, like fodder that you gave an animal. It was something that grew wild. It was readily available, but you wouldn't eat it. He's so hungry, throwing this among the pigs in their muck, gladly willing to eat it. That's how hungry he is. That first century audience tension is going crazy. He's under the weight of poverty, and look, no one is giving anything to him. Verse 17, but when he came to the census, what a line. When he came to the census, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. It took hitting bottom for him to come to his senses. Um, the non-entitlement world got a hold of him. No one was helping him out. The irony here is rich and deep. He's working for a pig farmer, feeding them, and he's hungry. And he says, you know, my father has hired men. And those hired men have more than enough to eat. If I'm going to do this kind of hired hand living, I'd be better off working for my dad and have living, you know, how many of you grew up watching Bonanza? You know, Bonanza? Or if you like Westerns. Westerns, you know, Westerns are godly films. 
good guys, bad guys, you know, men were men, women were women, you could tell the difference, you know, I mean, you killed the bad guys, the good guy won, you know how this, that's the way life should be in my book, you know, I'm a black and white kind of guy. Um, in the westerns, you had the guys who lived in the bunkhouse, and they were the hands, and they worked the cattle, or the ranch, or the farm, and they were taken care of, but they didn't live in the master's house. But they had plenty of food to eat. They had a nice bunkhouse. In fact, it looked pretty romantic in Bonanza, you know. Bunkhouse looked kind of cool. Play cards and listen to harmonica. What's wrong with that, you know? He says, I could be in my dad's hire and have plenty to eat. And I know what kind of employer he is. What am I doing here? Feeding pigs in this muck. So he comes to his senses and he's going to make a change. He has a plan, verse 18. I will get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Now I want to read this literally in a cumbersome way to make the force of how it would have been heard in the first century. No longer am I worthy your son to be called. No longer am I worthy to be your son called. Or the way it says in your text, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he has a plan. He, I will get up. He's come to his senses. Now, this is the first clear repentance we have in the storyline. And I want you to notice carefully, there's a couple of things going on. He's going to say he sinned against heaven. See it? I have sinned against heaven, verse 18, and in your sight. Father, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you in what I have done. And then we get this, I think, a fair um, sense of a rehearsing a speech that we're going to look at at a moment. But what's important here is he's humbled and he's repentant. And he's willing to say, I need to go back to my father and apologize and ask for forgiveness and acknowledge and own my sin. You know, as a sidebar here, there we have a lot of teens in the room, and uh, some of you moms and dads, you have teens uh, from the middle school to the teen years. We all have great teenage angst. Uh, I, I remember I hated my parents when I was a teenager, and they probably hated me too. Uh, it's a universalism. When you're a teenager, let's just, you know, parents, you can plug your ears. Teenagers, your parents are idiots. We can all agree on this, right? When you're a teen, mom and dad are idiots. They don't know anything. And of course, it sets up this wonderful transition of getting you out of the nest. That's how God designed it. Um, but during those teenage years, you look at your parents and you just, you don't, you don't like them and you disrespect them. And um, when you disrespect your parents, you're sinning against God. These things have been written that you will know the exact truth about what you've been taught. When you rebel, when you disobey, when you smart mouth, when you roll your eyes, when you say things under your breath, you're sinning against God. Well, you don't know my parents. My parents are jerks. Let's acknowledge that. It does not absolve you. My dad left my mom. My mom left my dad. They had an affair. They're not believers. Da, 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 da. It doesn't absolve you. 
I was a teenager, I remember well. I know it's hard to envision. Probably in my 20s. I came to Christ pretty early. I came to Christ at 15. And I was, I was a crazy maker when I came to Christ. Trying to convince my parents about coming to Christ. And the Bible had a big old Bible. And I was metaphorically beating them over the head with it. And I caused harm in my family that apart from the grace of God will never be resolved. In my mid to late 20s, I began to see the harm of arguing and fighting that ended in no good way. And I repented to my father in heaven, and I tried to make amends with my family as best I could. And I determined in my late 20s that I would love and respect my parents. My dad, who's now dead, and I agreed on very little. In fact, we disagreed on most everything. But he's my father. And when I buried him two years ago, I did not want to stand over his grave mad at him and God. And I love my precious mom. And as they've gotten older and dad is gone and mom is 84 and struggles daily with health, I called every week. I called every couple of days. I always talk to them. I write them notes. I always ask how they're doing. I called. I loved. I pursued. I respected them. Did I do it perfectly? No. But did I do it a lot better post-teens? Yes. I wrote them letters about what I'd learned. Thank you for the work ethic you've taught me. Thank you that you taught me to get up and initiate and try again and don't be lazy and be a person who tells the truth and work hard and it'll work out. And my dad's message, even though he's dead, he still teaches me. I don't know if he ever came to Christ. I don't think he did. But I tried to respect him all my life after that. Because if I don't, I'm sinning against God. All that's for free. <laughs> the humility we see where he cast himself on his father's mercy is something of import to me. We live in such an entitlement-oriented culture where people are lining up for handouts, not only from mom and dad, but from world, the world. It just drives me nuts. This guy goes home with no rights, no entitlements, no expectations, no defense, no explanations, no blaming his dad. He's not asking for his room back. I'll, I'll be as a hired man. I'll live in the bunkhouse with the men that you hire. I cannot be your son anymore. I abdicated that when I insulted you asking for your death and my money. When I squandered what you gave, your reputation is sullied. What you have done for me is extravagant. I am not your son anymore. But can I work for you? We don't see that humility today, do we? But we see it here. And that's why I think transformation is so powerful. An arrogant know-it-all upstart. Give me my money. I'm going to go party. And it's all gone. And he comes to his senses. Verse 20, so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father's compassion is picking up speed and emotion in the story. It's hard to relate it the way they would hear it. I want you to see something. Look at verse 18 in your Bible. You see where it says, I will get up and go? You see that? Verse 20, he got up and came. What's, what, what's Luke doing? I'm going to go to my father. And then he turns the story around from the dad's perspective. He's coming. 
And there's a thousand of those in there I'd love to show you. But that's just one that attracts the way the narrative moves so quickly. I'll go to my father. He's coming to his father. The story moves quickly for the hearer. Now at the distance he sees him. All kinds of speculation about why was he looking for him? That was the father every day looking over the horizon. Where's my son? Where's my son? I don't know. I don't think it matters. It's a story. Jesus is telling a parable. He saw him first. He felt compassion. Number one. This is going to drive the audience crazy. No. A father whose son like that comes home, you fold your arms, you ignore him, you walk into your house, you have nothing to do with him. He no longer exists. He is gone. That's how a Middle Eastern father would treat a son like this. Not this father. He felt compassion. We sang it in Psalm 103 this morning with Carl. As the Lord has compassion on his children, so God has on those who fear him. Luke 7, 13, when Jesus sees the widow with the dead son, he felt compassion for her. When the good Samaritan sees the man beaten by the road, he felt compassion for the throwaway person. God is a God of compassion. Secondly, he ran again breaking protocol. You'll see it today on the street. Middle Eastern cultures. The husband walks in front, the women and children in tow. It was true in the first century as well. The man led the family. He led the house. It wasn't meant to be misogyny or hating women. That was the culture of the day. Men don't run. They're dignified. You come to them. This man's already gone inside and pulled the drape. He doesn't know this son. No. He feels compassion, and he runs to go see his son. He can't wait to embrace him, and that's what he does. It's a vivid picture in Hebrew. It literally means to fall on the neck. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? The conflagration they had between the two of them. I mean, Jacob's running from Esau all of his life, and they meet later on with this entourage that they have both accumulated, wives and children and husbandry and all kinds of stuff. And, and Jacob, rightly so, is scared to death of Esau. Esau's going to kill him. And they finally meet after he sees his children and his flocks and his herds. Remember that story? And the text in Hebrew is so wonderful because he, they fall on each other's neck, head to the neck, neck, sobbing and crying, following. Why? Because you can't quite look them in the eye yet. The shame, the guilt, the fear, the loss, the angst, the hurt, you fall on their neck. You fall on their neck. And there's crying and sobbing. This son of mine, he runs to him. He can't quite look him in the eye. He's falling and falling and falling. And then what does he do? He kisses him. Relationship restored. First century Jew? No, 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 no. You throw him out. You don't feel compassion. You don't run to him. You don't embrace him. You don't kiss him. Verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you in your sight, against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the speech is truncated. He doesn't get to tell the rest of it. It's broken. 
But what we get are the repentance and humility. Verse 22, the narrative moves quickly. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. The father forgives and the story moves very rapidly. The best robe, stole. Think of a mink stole. A stole is the Greek term. Revelation 6, the believer is given the best attire. Glorified believers and angels wear a stole. The idea of it's the nicest garment in the house. The ring is a piece of authority. Now, it would not reestablish the authority like Joseph's robe and ring. He would not speak for the father anymore. He has disavowed his relationship with his dad when he took his estate and left and squandered it. But nevertheless, the father puts the relationship back on his hand. You're still my son. You're still my son. You won't have the rights you once had, but you're still my son. Sandals on his feet. Sandals were for rich people. Very few people had sandals in the first century. They all went barefoot. They didn't really need them. It's kind of overstatement. Put sandals on his feet. And if that weren't enough, kill the fatted calf. The fatted calf was an outburst of celebration. The fatted calf is a special animal that's overfed for probably the Feast of Atonement. Some of us are into, you know, grass-fed beef and, you know, we don't want to eat salmon that's raised in a farm. We want free-range salmon and that type of thing. Um, You'll get that later. Um, We want, you know, we don't want chickens that are raised in coops. We want, you know, organically raised chickens. We're in all this. Uh, Well, corn-fed beef in Pennsylvania is the best beef on the planet, in my humble opinion. And they say it's the worst for you. I'm still going to eat it. the, the fatted calf was, was fed a certain diet, so the fats and marbles of the meat were the best. Even the ancients knew that. So uh, that's the cut of meat you want. Go ahead and eat your grass food, and you'll die about the same time. I will, but be that as it may, uh, for another story, another time. Uh, you don't kill meat, you don't eat meat in the first century. Maybe once or twice a year. In Nigeria, at Christmas, they kill a goat. One goat. They might have a chicken once a month, maybe, in the villages. Oh, they're running around everywhere, but you don't kill your livestock. That's an extravagant thing to do. This animal has been set aside, not unlike the Passover lamb. You set that aside, you care for it, and then at Passover you kill it and eat that meat. You don't eat meat very often in the first century. That's not the way their diets worked. Well, verse 24, his rationale. The son of mine was dead, has come to life. He was lost, he's been found. And they began to celebrate. He's dead, but now alive. Now, the, the, don't miss the, the comparisons here. Dead, alive, lost, and found. The father's joy to see his son. I thought he was dead. Now he's alive. Let's have a banquet. Again, we have the banquet motif we've seen through the Gospel of Luke. A banquet is the picture of heaven. It's a picture of the eternal meal, if you will, the eschaton, the celebration, a wedding banquet, a, a come-of-age banquet, a party, a big party. We're going to kill the fatted calf. We're going to have it. Why? I thought my son was dead. He's alive. This is time to celebrate. He was lost. He's found. Some of you remember, I think it's about four, maybe five years ago, and Taylor University had a tragic accident where a number of their college students were in vans and were killed. And um, there were two girls in particular. One was uh, killed and buried, and the other one was in an ICU unit for about four or five weeks. And then they realized that the parents who had buried their daughter and the parents who were watching the vigil of their daughter had the wrong daughters. 
and the daughter who was been watched by these parents actually had died and the parents who grieve the loss of their daughter at the graveside discover that their daughter is alive in ICU. Now I can't imagine for one moment what the parents who thought their daughter was alive went through. I just can't go there. But can you imagine me and the parents who found out your daughter was alive? He's alive. You mean he's not dead? I thought he was gone forever. He's alive? Can you imagine the emotion? And those parents who went from the grave grief to the ICU. And now that young woman is married and serving Christ in Africa. <laughs> she was dead for a month. No, she's alive. Lost. Was found. This isn't how a father find, responds. Listen, if that's not a reason to kill the fatted calf, what is? So what? God's love awaits the sinner. His love awaits you. Before I came to Christ, I was a drug-using, licentious young man. I was stoned almost perpetually for about two years. And during those years, in God's great kindness, I came to Christ in a dramatic way. And for whatever reason, I don't understand the drug thing went away. I have friends who struggle with drugs all their lives. God just said, you're done with drugs. That's the only explanation I have. And I got drunk or stoned three times after I came to Christ. And each time was a miserable experience. And God just said, you're done with that. I praise him for that. I have no explanation, but that's what he did for me. I came to Christ in a powerful way. It took me a number of years to sort through it all and start to grow. And I can't believe he saved me. And I know I'm forgiven. But if I go back and think about those years, I can make myself sick. I know sin is removed east from west. Don't quote me scripture. I get that. Hear what I'm trying to say. I can go back and see what I squandered. I squandered money. I squandered time. I squandered people. I squandered relationships. I was a despicable person. And I could get nauseated if I stay there too long. The good part of that, it's a good block wall. This is Michael, don't go back there. Because even if you did, you'd feel worse than you do now. It's a good block wall. But you know what? He loves me. And his love awaits you. You squandered a relationship. You squandered your time. You squandered your money. You squandered your talents, your abilities, your career. You squandered something. He still loves you. He's waiting. He's got a calf ready to butcher and put on the grill for you. You heard him sing it. Could we that with ink the oceans fill, or the skies of parchment made, and every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretch from sky to sky. 
extravagant love awaits the sinner. Why would you not come? God bless you. Have a great week.